missing some people that may be on the ladies' retreat, maybe traveling. We want to pray for them as they continue their travels this weekend. But we're so thankful we can be together this morning to worship the Lord, to study His Word together, to sing His praises. Just a few announcements while you're finding your seat. Uh, for those who are wanting to connect in a life group, you've heard us mention in recent weeks, there's a new life group that's studying Paul Tripp's parenting that Kyle Watley's leading on, here on this campus every other Sunday night. There's a new group that's in Prattville at the Mendenhall's house. There's other groups that are ongoing as well that you're welcome to join. Go to our website, gatewaybaptist.com. Click on the Connect tab. Go down to Life Groups. You'll see the full list. And we'd encourage you, if you're longing for community and wanting to connect, it's a great place to do that. It's in people's homes on the, in our small group life groups. Another great place to connect is through prayer and to pray together. So this afternoon at 4.30 here in the sanctuary, there's a prayer gathering led by one of our elders, Greg Till, and his wife, Cecilia. And so that'll be back in the sanctuary today at 4.30. Hope you can join them for that. Also, two other announcements of upcoming opportunities. Parents Night Out, hosted by our Young Adult Life Group, is coming up this Saturday. Now, some of you have already discovered the hard way. It's already at capacity. For, for Gateway, we normally register late for every event except for this one. This one fills up like the day it opens. So the Young Adult Life Group has struck a nerve with the parents of Gateway. So it is already at capacity. If you were hoping to come and did not sign up, if you could do so today on the website, that will put you on a wait list so that we know that there's more people interested. Now, with that said, the Young Adult Life Group wanted me to share with you, if you would like to serve to help make this happen, you are welcome to. So you do not have to be in the Young Adult Life Group to help. And so know there's parents with kids who would love a date night out. And if you'd like to help make it possible for them, you are welcome to join the Young Adult Life Group in taking care of the kids. You would have to go through all of our background check processes and security screenings, but that could be done this week. So let us know if you are interested. Last thing, if you have not walked down this hallway today, you'll see the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes are already here and already out. Yes, it is that time of year for us. Why do we do Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes? Because you fill them with gifts of whatever age kids you want to do, you mark it on the box. And these go to places in the world to further gospel witness. This is taken by Samaritan's Purse, and they go into areas. And it's not just they hand a gift and they're done. They use the gifts to get access to the kids, to get access to the families, and they offer Bible studies and discipleship. And they've seen so many people come to faith in Christ and be discipled and connected to local churches through something as simple as packing a shoebox. So if you want a practical way this season to help get the gospel to the ends of the earth, this is one small thing you can do. And so the boxes are due back six weeks from today, so we're giving you plenty of time. They're due back November 19th, but the boxes are already assembled. The labels you can put on them are inside the instruction brochure of how to pack a shoebox and what you can and cannot put in. All that's in the box as you leave today. If you want to go down that hallway right outside the office, you'll see tons of them stacked up waiting for you to grab one. If you need more details, go to our website, gatewaybaptist.com. Under news and events, you will see the listing of what is available. Now, as we prepare to sing to the Lord this morning, we're going to introduce a new song to you this morning. A few weeks back, Justin and I and some members of our praise team and some of our family members as well got to go to Keith and Kristen Getty's Sing Conference in Nashville as we were singing, they introduced several new songs for us. And this one just really, this one was powerful to me. It was to Justin as well. But we're going to sing a new song today called All My Boast is in Jesus. And it's going to begin with what wonder of wonders, what love is this, that Christ would die for me. His goodness, his merit, his righteousness, the sinner's only plea. O foolish pride be crucified, the work is finished. And then we'll sing all my boast is in Jesus, all my hope is his love, and I will glory forever in what the cross has done. And friends, it's such a glorious truth and reminder for us, friends, that we don't work to earn our salvation, that we don't add anything to what Christ has already done for us. Our only hope is in Christ and what he has done. So he is our only boast. So with that said, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 1 as we prepare to sing. Can I ask you to stand, please, as we hear God's word? 
1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's boast in Christ this morning and celebrate him today. But in the grace of God, 
thy glory and weakness to live as Christ in plenty or in one.
Baby 
invite you to join me in prayer. Father, as we've just sung this last song, I can't help but think of Psalm 8, where the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When we look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. You have given us dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under our feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the fields, the heavens, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And Lord, as we have sung your praises from your word, we are reminded of your creative power. Over the last few weeks, as we've looked at the book of Genesis, we have been reminded again and again of your omnipotent power. And we are reminded 
that we exist because of you. You created us, you formed us in our mother's womb. And we are here in this moment because of your creative power. Thank you. And because of your creative power and your works, it should lead us, as we have done this morning, to the worship and adoration of you, our most holy God. We come and we bow before you because you are the God of all creation and we are but dust. Lord, your creation points also to even a greater power and that is the power which you have to make us a new creation in Christ Jesus. Salvation is from you and to you and through you. To you, O Lord, be the glory and majesty. Thank you for saving us. Lord, I pray that there's someone in this room this morning who has not experienced that new creation, that today would be the day of salvation. And for those in this room, Lord, who know you, Lord, our hearts cry out, may we see more of you. Lord, thank you for the many needs and the opportunities that we have to pray for those around us. I thank you for what you're doing here at Gateway. And we lift up this morning the ministry, the Gateway College ministry. Thank you for the young men and women who are part of that. Thank you for for Parker and Aaron and Seth and Megan and their pouring out their lives into these young people. And I pray that you would continue to bless them and give them grace upon grace, Lord, to love these young adults. That, Lord, these men and women who are in college right now, they have an opportunity to learn and to grow, but also to be salt and light where you've placed them. And I pray that they would be salt and light, that they would be a clear testimony of the gospel in their own lives and as they engage with the people around them, that Christ would be their all in all. Lord, this morning we also want to pray for churches in the community and we think of Trinity Presbyterian who is in the midst of looking for a pastor. We pray for them, give them wisdom, give them grace as they seek the next man to lead that body. And I pray, Lord, that that individual would be a faithful proclaimer of your word. Do pray for Pastor Bill Clark, who is interim right now, as he gives them guidance and, and is there to encourage the body. I pray that you continue to give him grace as he leads and as he serves Trinity Presbyterian. Lord, we also want to think of our local leaders. We think of Governor Ivey and Mayor Reed. And Lord, we know that you put people in authority. You have placed them in those positions. And so we pray for them that they would make wise decisions, that they would help our community to grow and prosper in the state of Alabama, that their decisions, the decisions that they make would be for the good of the people. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would continue to give them wisdom and grace as they lead. Lord, we think about global missions, and, and particularly this group, the Catillo of Aruba, uh, Colombia, who have never heard the gospel. We asked, Lord, that uh, as a missionary team recently found out about this group, they were invited to share the gospel with the community. And we asked, Lord, as they make this journey into the community, that, Lord, the gospel would be heard and they would respond to the truth. Open eyes and ears, Lord. And as you say, when we get to heaven one day, every tribe will be there, every people, where we long for that day. 
Thank you, Lord, for the giving of your people. We pray that you would use this offering for the furtherance of your kingdom, Lord. Thank you for what you have given us. And, Lord, help us to be faithful to give back to you, knowing that it doesn't belong to us. All that we have, our homes, our cars, our jobs, all that we have, our lives, are, they belong to you, Lord. May we give of our time, may we give of our resources, may we do so joyfully knowing that, Lord, you have blessed us immensely. And Lord, as Grady comes this morning, I ask that you would just anoint him with your spirit as he proclaims your word, that the gospel and the truth of your word would go forth and it would do its work in our hearts. Lord, we would see and hear and understand that we would lead here a changed people, a people who love you more. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to sit under your word this morning, and we ask that you would use it and bless it, and may all that is said and done bring glory to your name. I pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, the kids are on the way. If you'll find Genesis chapter 2 and your copy of God's Word, Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Now, I know it's not the beginning of a chapter in our chapter, but today marks a new section of Genesis. This is a whole new part of the original writing of the book. This begins a whole new section. Everything we've seen up until this point has been in a sense the intro of the book. But Genesis chapter 2 this morning, starting in verse 4, begins a new section of what has been given to us here. It's a section of the book that provides us with really foundational truths to understand who we are. Because God has much to say about that. Now, if you think about the world we live in, you think about people you know and think about yourself, the reality is many people today struggle with a wrong view of themselves. We all know people who have a very overinflated view of themselves, who make much of themselves, to act as though they need nothing, who are above correction, above help, above being in community. Again, people who the Bible would say have pride, and we have that in our own lives as well. We all know people as well who have an unhealthy low view of themselves, who believe their lives are pointless, and everything is a woe is me, and they feel they've lost purpose and meaning and identity, and everything is just always down. But Genesis chapter 2, the verses we come to today, provide a corrective for both of those. God has much to say to us in Genesis 2 about who we are as people. Truths that will humble us when we are proud and truths that will build us up when we are low. So as we look today at Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. As we read, I want you to look for what does God tell us here? What do we see in these four verses that give us purpose and hope in life? In other words, what in these verses bring us up? We're feeling low and feeling down. But what does God say here in these verses that give us humility, that bring us down when we're too high and thinking about ourselves? So as we read, look for what brings us up when we need to be brought up, what brings us down when we need to be brought down. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on this land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Would you pray for me with me? 
Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have told us who you are. And as we come to texts like this, you've told us who we are and your plans for us. And so, Lord, you see our hearts. You know the pride in our hearts. You know the wrong thinking in our hearts. And I pray today that you would use your word and your Holy Spirit would apply your word to help us view ourselves correctly. So give us correction where we need correction. Give us encouragement where we need encouragement. Use your word to be forming us and shaping us to be who you want us to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, when we look at these verses in Genesis, this is a text that has been frustrating for people, that's been misunderstood by people. It was a harder text than a lot I come across to study this week. And so before we jump into what this teaches about us, there's three things we need to understand to make sense of this text. This, again, is one that I've struggled with throughout the week, but several things kind of make this click and help us understand what is actually being said here and what the whole point of this text is. The first thing we need to understand for this text is the opening phrase here, the generation. So go back to verse 4 here. And notice how this whole section begins. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, friends, it is easy to skip over that, but don't. This is one of the most important phrases in all of the book of Genesis. Now, this is actually a special word in Genesis, a word called toledot. I want you to see it up on the screen. So this is the word that is beginning here. What we translate, these are the generations, is the Hebrew word toledot. Now, don't skip this one because this is an important word. It'll appear 10 times in Genesis, and it marks significant transitions every time it appears. These were the original chapter breaks, if you will, of Genesis. Now, this Hebrew word toledot literally means to give birth, to bear, hence the generations that have come from a person. And so every time you see this word toledot, which will be translated for us, the generations in Genesis, it tells us what is following an event or a person. And so you'll see it introduced in different ways. So for example, Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, if you're looking ahead to the story of Noah, which we'll come to in several months still, it says these are the generations, these are the toledot of Noah. Well, Noah hasn't appeared yet. This is now going forward. And it starts telling us about Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Verse 10, it carries on. And Noah had three sons. So here come the generations, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Keep going. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So that toledot introduces for us the story of Noah and what's happening in the world at Noah's time and the generations that would come with Noah, and hence the flood and the ark. It's all introduced by the toledot. These are the generations of Moses. You'll see one in Genesis 11, verse 27 to 30 as well. Now these are the generations of Terah. Okay, well, what's, gonna, what's so significant about this guy named Terah? Well, he starts telling us about the generations. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Verse 28, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Verse 29, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, and the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarah was barren. She had no child. Now, at that point, you should start being familiar with where the story's going to go with Abraham and Sarah. This is the teledot. These are the generations of Abraham that becomes the generations that will follow of God's people. And then we go back today to verse 4. It's that same word that appears 10 times in Genesis. These are the generations. These are the teledots of the heavens and the earth. Now, of the 10 times you see this in Genesis, the first five 
are all what we're doing in this study, Genesis 1 to 11. The first five are what we call primeval history, the beginnings of humanity. The last five of these Toledots are all about Israel's fathers, Abraham and his descendants. And it focuses on the nation of Israel and God's plan. So Genesis 1 to 11 has the first five. These are the generations. Genesis 12 to 50 has the next five. These are the generations. But we're starting today with the first one. The very first one is these are the Teledot. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It is showing us what the main focus is. As God makes the heavens and the earth, what is the first thing God now focuses on and what he does? And what follows is the creation of humanity. The focus on the first people. And so what we're seeing in this first major section of Genesis is the story shifts to God's plan for his people. As such, friends, it has much to say about our identity. It corrects the lies of the enemy that lead us to be full of pride, and it corrects the lies of the enemy that leads us to self-abasement. So to understand this text, we have to understand this is not just a random verse here. This is the beginning of a new section about humanity and God's plans for people. But there's a second key to understand this text, and that's the name of God that you see here. Look at verse 4 here. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that, notice this, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now this is the first time you see God's name recorded this way in Scripture. The Lord God. You'll see it repeated in verse 5. And then in verse 5, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. You see it repeated in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. In the next few weeks we'll see this over and over in chapters 2, 3, and four. Now, this is important as well. So I got a slide. I want you to see what this word is as well. This is the name Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Now, this is massively significant also in the Hebrew language here. Because up until this point, in all of chapter 1, every reference to God was Elohim, the general word for God. And that was a very fitting name of God to be used in chapter 1 because the name Elohim stresses God's majesty. It stresses his great power. So when God reveals his name to us in Genesis 1, he's telling us he's speaking and the cosmos is coming into being. It's fitting that he shows himself as Elohim, the majestic, the all-powerful, the omnipotent God. He's Elohim. But now he combines that with another one of his names, the name Yahweh, which we translate Lord. This is God's covenant name. The name God reveals and how he relates to his people. This is a name God uses to show that he relates to them. The name God uses to show that he redeems them from their sin. So don't skip over the simple name of God here. This is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. The all-powerful God Elohim who made everything from nothing is the same God Yahweh who desires a relationship with his people even if he has to redeem them to make that relationship happen. So the all-powerful one true God desires to be known by his people and desires to know them intimately. That's not something that just happens post-fall or when Christ comes from the very beginning the generations, the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, God's plan has been to be known as the all-powerful God Elohim who is also Yahweh, a God in relationship with his people. So that begins to clarify the focus of chapter 2 for us here. Toledot tells us this is a story of the first people, humanity. But the name of God here shows us that the focus is not just about people, it's about God's relationship to people. Now there's one more key to understand this text, and that's the structure of the writing. It took me till the end of the week for this to finally click and make sense of how all this fits together. Genesis chapter 2 verses 4 to 7 is just one sentence in the Hebrew. Just one long sentence here. Verse 4 introduces the sentence. It tells us that God made everything. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It concludes with the Lord God 
Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens. Now the whole sentence builds to the last clause of verse 7. So go down to verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils of, lo- of the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So your main sentence is verses 4 and verse 7 here. It's all building to this main clause that Yahweh Elohim is intentionally forming the first people. Now, what do you do with verses 5 and 6 in the middle? These kind of seem like random verses about no bushes in the field and no small plants and no rain. What in the world is all this about? Well, this is a subordinate, these are all subordinating clauses, okay? I have to think back to English, right? I'm sure you all think about subordinating clauses frequently, right? I was talking to Jennifer Habercorn before the service. She's leading kids worship this morning, and she's so sad because she's not here. She loves grammar, and a lot of you kids have had her in this. But these are subordinating clauses, and I check my definition of subordinating clauses with her to make sure I'm being consistent with what you kids are learning in her class as well. But a subordinating clause is a phrase that cannot stand on its own, right? It's a phrase that supports something else. A subordinating clause provides context related to the main idea. So when we read this, verses 5 and 6 can seem really random here. Why are there no bushes? Why are there no small plants? Why is there no rain? These are subordinating clauses. The point of this one sentence, verses 4 to 7, is that God who made the heavens and the earth, the generations that follow from this, God is making the first people. Verses 5 and 6 are subordinating clauses that tell us the context into which God puts the first people here. And so what is the context in which this relationship with God begins when Yahweh Elohim makes people and wants to know them? What is the context in which all this is happening? That's verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now that sounds really weird at first, doesn't it? What in the world is this about? Well, notice the terminology and the choice of this here. We're told, first of all, in verse 5, that there's no bush of the field. Okay, wait, wait. We were just saw in Genesis chapter 1 that God has made all these plants, so now we're being told there's no bushes. What is this, friends? These are maybe a better word for bush. Think of weeds. Think of plants that are not helpful. Think of plants that are not useful. Now, go back to Genesis 1.29. What did God told the first people about the creation of plants? We're told that he has given them every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seeds fruit. You shall have them for food. So everything God has made is good, is perfect, is useful. Remember we said God made an edible world, and so everything is good for where Adam would be put into this, and Eve would be put into this to have an edible world. So now we go back to verse 5 here. Now we're being told there's no bush of the field. God's not contradicting himself here. These are plants that do not yet exist because the fall has not yet happened. This is a point to show that there's perfection here. That means when Yahweh Elohim makes Adam, everything, like we saw in Genesis 1, is edible for him. Everything is, has a point. Everything serves him. That means, friends, this is telling us when no bush of the field means there's no poison ivy to make him itch. This is telling us here that there's no kudzu to take over his beautiful garden. This means there's going to be no crabgrass to invade his yard where he has to call Kyle to be like, hey, come get rid of this from my yard. It doesn't look good anymore. There's none of those type plants here. All those plants appear after the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, you see when this comes. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The thorns and thistles are the same thing as the bushes here. When God makes everything perfect, There's there's all this stuff that we're seeing here, the poison ivy, the kudzu, the weeds, the bushes, all this appears after the fall. So why in the world is he telling us this back in verse 5? Why is there no bush of the field? Remember, this is context. This is subordinating clause. He's showing that when God made man, everything was perfect. 
This is an image of contrast for us to make sure we realize that when God created the first people, this was a time of complete perfection. In fact, it was so perfect, there was not even a hint of crabgrass in the garden. There was not even a hint of poison ivy or kudzu. Everything was perfect for Adam and then for Eve. We see that of the next word as well in verse 5 here. We're told not only was there no bush in the field was yet in the land, and there's no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. What in the world is a small plant? These are plants that have to be worked hard at to grow. Think wheat, think grains, think rice. These are things that take a lot of effort. These things aren't going to grow unless you work the soil, unless you irrigate the land, unless you remove the weeds. You don't drive by, or if you're out hiking with me, you don't go through this and be like, wow, look, there's a field of corn that came up by itself. Oh, look, there's a field of wheat that came up by itself. Those type crops only come when we work hard. Why? Because of the curse, because of the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, the verse after we looked at a minute ago. By the sweat of your face, again, this is post-curse, post-fall, post-sin. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So when we're looking at verse 5 here, there's no of these small plants of the field. There's no plants that require man to work hard to make them work here. This again is showing us the context in which God makes the first man. This is pre-fall, pre-curse. Everything is perfect for which God will relate to his people. There's one more word to help us understand the perfection of the world at the time when God makes Adam and Eve. And so go back in verse 5 here and notice the end of it. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. Okay, why in the world is that significant here? Why is it not rained? Well, think when did rain appear? Rain came first not as a blessing, but as a judgment on the earth. The first time a raindrop fell from the sky was Genesis chapter 7, verse 4. This is now in the Toledot about Noah. For in seven days, God says, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 days, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. So that's in the time of Noah. So when we're told back in verse 5, there's no rain yet, God is giving us a very clear picture that when he made Adam and Eve, they didn't evolve into some time period where things were already broken. They were created by God and put into a place of absolute perfection. There was no rain of judgment yet. There was no weeds. There was no kudzu. There was no poison ivy. Everything was just absolutely perfect for God's people. Now, immediately we start scratching our heads going, okay, well, if there's no rain, how in the world did the earth survive? How was it sustained? And maybe the Lord knew we'd start scratching our heads wondering. So he tells us, go back to verse 6. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. God's showing us a picture of a world very different than we know it. But this word mist is really not the best translation. Your Bibles may have a footnote there. The better translation is literally springs here. Springs were coming up, watering the whole face of the land. Those natural springs where clean water bubbles up and creates creeks that feed into rivers and waters everything. Because when I go backpacking, one of my favorite trails I do is up in Chihau, but it's a really, really dry trail. Except for one spot, regardless of how much rain you have or have not had, there's always water coming down the Cave Creek Trail. Why? You're nodding because you've been out there also. The Cave Creek Trail, because it's a spring-fed one. There's a water table below the earth that always is giving out water there, regardless of the rainfall you have. Or when we were out west this summer, we were out at Yellowstone, we went to what's called the Grand Prismatic Spring. And this gorgeous thing God made, there's no creeks coming into it, no rivers coming into it, but it's pushing out 560 gallons of water every minute. That's like 33,000 gallons of water an hour coming out of this hole in the ground. Why? Because there's a water table below that's bringing up the water to the ground around it. When God made the world, the entire world was watered 
by these springs everywhere that fed everything. And so we put all that together. Verses 5 and 6 are not just some random things about bushes and weeds and mist or street or springs on the ground. It's a picture God is giving us of a beautiful pre-fall world where there's no need for extra labor because of there's no curse. There's no weeds. There's constant water supply. Everything is growing to help Humanity. It's all building. There's a subordinating points to the main point. And what is the main point? Verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So the main point about this is Yahweh Elohim is creating the first man, wanting to relate to him, and he does so in a place of absolute perfection. Now notice how God made the first person. How did God make Adam the first person? And it's very different than anything else God has done. Up until this point, we saw it in Genesis 1. Everything else God makes, he speaks, and it just happens. He speaks, and 100,000 million galaxies and stars within them appear. He just speaks, and everything comes to pass. But what God does here is so different than anything else he has made. Notice the two phrases, the two key verbs in verse 7 that show us how God made humanity. Then Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, he formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of of life. So he formed, he breathed, and when he did that, what happened? The last verse, the last part of verse seven, and the man became a living creature. God formed us very different than anything else, and that is what shapes our identity and corrects us if we're too low or too high. So, two truths here from the way that God made us. The first truth that the way God made us, the first truth that helps us from the way God made us is that, first of all, we are frail and we are dependent on God. God didn't have to tell us any of this, but why did he? Because he's helping us understand that we are frail, we are dependent on him. This is a correction to the pride that so easily grips any of our hearts. Now, where is this here that we're frail and we are dependent? Look at the first part of verse 7. Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, he formed the man of dust from the ground. Notice God made Adam from dust. Now, dust is something of little value, right? This is a picture of lowly Origins. Now, God didn't, could have made us from gold dust. He didn't. That would have been a lot more cool to be like, yeah, we're all made of gold dust in our bodies. That's not what he did. He could have made us from emerald. He could have made us from sapphires. He could have made us from diamond dust. That would have been pretty cool. Or he could have made us from something really strong, like we're granite dust. No, God made us from the dust of the ground, the stuff that you vacuum when your kids track in, the stuff that you sweep up when you walk in with muddy shoes on. That's what God made the first man from. An all-powerful God can take dirt and make it into DNA. He can take the dust and he can form out of that lungs and hearts and brains and all that we are. Why would Yahweh Elohim choose to use dust? I think to remind us, every time we think about how weak and needy and dependent we are on him. That's why descriptions of death in Scripture so often include returning to dust. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, we looked at it a minute ago. You'll see it there also. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground... For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is a reminder God gives us to humble us from the pride that comes in our hearts. So when we are tempted to think we are so strong and we are so smart and we are so wise and we have it all figured out and we are just on top of everything, in those points we need to remember we were made from dust and within a few short years or decades we will all be dust again. Some of us need that reminder today that we are dust. We are needy. We are broken. We are frail and dependent on God. But that truth, friends, is balanced by another truth here. Not just are we frail and dependent, but number two, we're special to God. 
We are special to God. Now, this is the correction we need when we're feeling our lives are pointless or we are unimportant or we don't have purpose in life. We are special to God. And we see that in two places in this text. Go back to the beginning of verse 7 here. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. It says he formed us. It's a Hebrew word, yasar, that means intentionally to do something. You don't accidentally form something. This means God had a master plan and he created us by design. The Yahweh Elohim by design, made humanity the way we are. You see that as well in this word form because it's the same word that's used when a potter makes his design. So you think of a potter taking the clay and shaping it and making a beautiful vase or a beautiful pot or something, and he's doing it with joy and with intentionality. That's the image here of what God has done for us. Friends, that is you. You are made by God. He delighted in making you. He found joy in making you or by design the way you are. This is why the psalmist declares in Psalm 139 in this beautiful text, Psalm 139, 13, for you, God, you formed, same idea here. He's shaping and intentionally building something beautiful. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. When as yet there were none. Then in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. So the fact that God formed us tells us we are special to God. He crafted us with joy and intentionality. But we see that we're special to God also in the second part of this verse. Back to verse 7. Notice he not only forms us with intentionality. It says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He breathed. The idea of forcefully breathing out where you can feel the breath. The Hebrew word here is the word ruach. You can't even say it without the force of the breath coming out of your mouth. This is an image of something very close and very personal. And there's nothing else in all of the six days of creation that parallels this. God speaks, but here God breathes in a special way. This is an image for us. The God who is everywhere, he's omnipresent, has come in a special way to the man he is shaping and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is an idea of, of, of intimacy, the idea of something very personal, of God being close to his people. This means that God desires for us to be near to him. One of the authors I read this week put all this together so well, just quoting a bunch of scriptures. This is what this author wrote. I am the creator. This is from God's perspective. I am the creator and you are my creation. I breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. I created you in my own image. My eyes saw your unformed substance. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know the number of hairs on your head and before a word is on your tongue, I know it. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. So friends, you are special to God and some of you today need to be reminded of that, that God loves you and formed you and desires to be close to you. He gave you life for a reason. Now, but notice how those truths hold intention together. Go back to verse 7. The Lord God formed, with intentionality and joy, the man from the dust from the ground. There's the humility. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the specialness that he does. We're made from dust, an image of lowliness. But we have the breath of God in us. What we just sang the last song before the sermon, it's your breath in my lungs. That's from based on this here. We have the breath of God in us. That's an image of glory and of honor. So in this one verse of verse 7, we see that we are both honored and we are humbled at the exact same time. We are honored and humbled at the same time that God has given to people a special honor, but we are also humbled because we are dependent on God for absolutely 
everything. So let's try to bring all of that back together, friends. If you see Genesis 2, 4 to 7 is one big sentence that begins with this told out. These are the generations. It tells the story of the creation of people by Yahweh Elohim. And we understand all this is the context in which he places and especially creates the first people. What do we learn? Here's the key truth I want you to see from this, these verses. And simply this, friends. God's unique creation of the first person reminds us how important we are to God and how dependent we are on God. This story of creation, this uniqueness of God forms us, but from dust, from something so simple and lowly, but yet he breathes into us. This reminds us that we are dependent on God, and yet we are special to God. We are important to him. And friends, depending on the seasons of life and what we are going through, there's times we need to be reminded of both of those, sometimes in the same day. Because some of you today are at a place that you're feeling like you're struggling with purpose and direction and, and what's going on in life. And you need to be reminded today that God made you by design and God loves you and he is with you and he desires for you to be close to him. But some of you today are at a place to where you're feeling like you have pretty much everything figured out. Again, what the Bible calls pride. And so you need the reminder from creation to remember that you are dependent on God, so dependent on him that if he quit holding you, you would fall back to the dust from which we came very quickly. God tells us both truths to give us a secure identity that we belong to him, we are special to him, and yet we need to be humble because we are completely dependent on him for everything. God's unique creation of the first person reminds us how dependent we are on God, and how important we are to God. With that, I have two questions for us as we close. The first question is, friends, do you live like you are important to God? Do you live like you are important to God? Not can you give the right answer. All of us here could be like, yes, yes, humanity is made in God's image, and we're important to God. But do we live that way? You hear me talk often about my own wrestlings with what I call our confessional theology. Most of us here can give the right answers. But what's our functional theology? What do our lives show? If you look at how we live our lives, are we living our lives from a place that we are resting in God's unconditional love? Are you going through life feeling like you have somehow have to earn God's love and earn other people's love? Are we at a place where we're really resting in the love of God, God's unconditional love, because we know he made us and he has redeemed us and he is holding us? Do you live like you know you're important to God? But secondly, friends, do you live like you are dependent on God? Do you live like you're dependent on God? If you look at your own life, is your life marked by your strivings and you trying to use your wisdom and your strength to accomplish your goals? Or is your life marked by a life of total dependency on the Lord? As we talked about this summer when we studied prayer, perhaps one of the best indicators of whether we're dependent on God or not is how we're praying. Because if we really understand we are of dust and to dust we will return, that God is one holy, that will drive us to our knees saying, Lord, help, I don't know what to do. Lord, help, I don't have strength for this. But yet so often we go through our lives not praying because we really are not dependent on God. So do you live like you're special to God and important to God? And do you live like you are dependent on God? Friends, today if there's areas where you see pride in your life, self-importance, self-dependence, God is calling you to remember that you came from dust and to dust you will return and he gives you that truth to lead you to humble yourself before him. But today, if you feel like your life is pointless and you're feeling low, God is calling you to remember that he carefully formed you. He made you for a reason. He loves you. And in all this, Yahweh Elohim is calling to us as people to remind us that he desires to be close to us and desires for us to be close to him. And he invites us to run to him in dependence every day, enjoying his presence. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've not left us wondering where we come from. Or you did not have to tell us any of this. You did not have to reveal to us 
how you created the first man. You did not have to reveal to us where you made the first man. You didn't have to reveal to us how you made the first man. But God, you and your kindness to us and your infinite wisdom chose to give us these truths. You didn't have to tell us that there was no rain and that there was no bushes and no small plants. But you chose to because you want us to understand from where we have come so that we find that balance and knowing that we are loved by you and we are dependent upon you. And so, Lord, for the pride that's in each one of our own hearts, we all have it. We confess that to you right now. Lord, we have nothing that we can bring apart from our own sin and our own weakness. Lord, we are dependent upon you for everything. We have nothing we can bargain with you for because we came from dust and to dust we will return. Lord, we are needy and dependent. And yet, Lord, we are blown away by the fact that we are honored by you that you would choose to make us, God, before you made me, before you made each of these brothers and sisters, you knew how we would offend you. You knew how we would sin against you. You knew how we would go our own way, and yet you still formed us in our mother's womb. You still knit us together, knowing the pain we would cause you. And you still chose to send Christ to redeem us, even though we were rebels and it turned against your plan. And you look upon us now, these rebellious creatures that you have redeemed and you find joy in us. You say you are special, you are love. Father, we cannot comprehend how something made of dust that has rebelled against you could be special and lovely and delightful to you. But it's what we sang earlier, Lord. It's only because of Christ. So Lord, help us boast not in our wisdom. Help us boast not in our strength. Help us boast nothing of ourselves. Help us boast only in Christ. And let us magnify you, Lord. You have redeemed us. You have made us so that we can glorify you. And Lord, our cry is we want to do that more. So Lord, I pray for myself and these brothers and sisters this week. For, is for the pride that's in our hearts, Lord, would you show that to us so that we can repent of it? Would you reveal it to us so that we can humble ourselves before you? And for those areas this week, Lord, where we are thinking wrongly about ourselves and we're not finding joy in the fact that you love us, would you convict us of that as well? And would you just remind us all week long how you made us and you are holding us and you love us. So this week, Lord, would you give us that beautiful balance we see here in the creation of Adam. That we are dependent on you and we are special to you. And I pray that would be a place of security for us, a place of hope for us from which we can walk out into this world you've called us to live in and love people knowing that we are loved and held by you. So we ask for much grace. We cannot produce that in our, heart, in our own hearts. We can't even remember that this week in our own strength. We are desperate for you to remind us of these truths of who we are and to give us a strength to live accordingly this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?
name Yahweh and we just sung about his attributes his sovereignty his majesty his glory would you take just a minute where you're standing and praise God for his names and his attributes now would you take just a minute where you're standing And thank God for what he's shown you about who you are, dependent and special to him. Thank him for that. And now would you take just a moment and ask God for much grace this week to live according to that identity you have in him. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who throughout all time will be crowned with glory and praises and honor. You, the all-powerful one, Elohim, the one who loves his people, Yahweh, you've invited us to know you. And Lord, I pray this week we would be a people that do not run from you, but would run to you. So give us much grace this week to remember who we are in you 
how you've made us. And may it lead us all week long to think about you, to ponder your names and your attributes and your characteristics, to run to your word and to run to prayer because we want to know you more. So stir our heart affections to want to know you, Yahweh Elohim, even more this week. We ask it for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday afternoon.